will be in Colossians 1 tonight. We'll be in verses 21 to 23, but we'll read the whole chapter until verse 23. So Colossians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you have learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled in the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the person of Christ, Lord, you have revealed your Shekinah glory, that your tabernacling presence is revealed to us in the flesh of Christ, and that he has truly come to be with us, and that our great hope is that we will one day see our Christ face to face. And yet, Father, in this time of in-between, the reality of us knowing of Christ, of knowing the benefits uh, even now of the new creation, of being new creations ourselves, in that time in which your consecrating work would uh, come to fruition and consummation, 
Father, we pray that as we are in the already, waiting for the not yet, that as we long to see you, that we would still realize, though we are not yet with you, we do have a home with you. So, Father, have this reality set before us tonight. Help us to know that in the gospel, we have a sure home. Help us to see this, O Father, this very night. And Lord, may we stake our faith and our hearts and our very lives upon this precious reality. We ask this, O Father, in your Son's holy and perfect name. Amen. After having studied the temple in Ezekiel, the theology of Colossians is a perfect book to see how all the expectations of Ezekiel's end-time temple are fulfilled in Christ. Ezekiel's end-time temple was pictured as an Edenic sanctuary placed in a land free from sin and chaos, where the restored exiles would commune with God forever. And last week, we saw how Christ's exalted humanity is God's chosen means to show His glory to humanity. Our resurrected Christ is the end-time temple wherein redeemed exiles, the church, can commune with God. And like Ezekiel's vision of a restored land free from sin and chaos, Jesus has inaugurated a new creation where all chaotic powers are subject to Christ and where a cosmic peace will undo the curse of sin at the end of the age. In our passage tonight, Paul will shift focus from Christ's cosmic reconciliation to our personal reconciliation to God. And using the imagery of the exile, Paul contrasts the Colossians' former status in sin with their new status in Christ and their continual need of Him. False teachers at this point had presented a false home for Christian exiles. Rather than remain on the sure foundation of Christ, the Colossians were tempted to leave Christ and build upon sinking sand. And likewise, brothers and sisters, we are prone to build upon a sinking sand. We are prone to leave our home. But this is what we should see tonight. We must remain steadfast in Christ. We must remain steadfast in Christ because we have a home in Him. In our passage, Paul calls the church to remain steadfast in Christ because we are no longer exiles with a home, without a home. Two, we have been prepared for God's home. And three, we have no better home. So, to repeat, Paul calls the church to remain steadfast in Christ because we are no longer exiles without a home. We have been prepared for God's home, and we have no better home. So, for our first point, remain steadfast in Christ because we are no longer exiles without a home. In verse 21, Paul highlights the Colossians' former status in sin. But I want us to highlight first some background imagery. In verses 21 and 22, Paul contrasts the Colossians' former and current status by evoking a major Old Testament theme that we've already mentioned, the exile. The exile from the promised land was the final covenant curse for Israel. 
In their sinful rebellion, Israel was alienated from God. But in His grace, God promises to restore Israel to the land, reconciled to Him. In Isaiah 40 to uh, the end of the book, really, we see the language of hostile exiles being restored to a new creation, which flows from what Paul taught in verses, uh, excuse me, uh, we, we see that hostile exiles being restored to a new creation. And this flows with the thought of what we see in Paul taught in verses 18 to 20, is that Christ is the new temple, and that in Him there are all the new creational realities coming about. And in Ezekiel uh, chapter 40 to 48, where we saw the vision of the end time temple, the humble exiles are restored to a new temple where they can worship God. Likewise, Christ is the new temple that reveals God's glory and in whom the church can now worship God perfectly, just as we saw last time. And so since Paul is using, is using the imagery of the Old prophets, Old Testament prophets to speak of Christ, we will also use the corresponding imagery to speak about the church. If Christ is the new temple and the new creation, the church are the former exiles who have entered the new creation and new temple. You see? And so with this background in place, see how Paul speaks of the Colossians' former way of life. In verses 15 to 20, Paul taught that all creation... Even opposing spiritual powers are subject to the divine Christ. But in verse 21, Paul focuses on the Colossians as rebellious exiles. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Like the opposing spiritual forces, sinful rebels are under under Christ's divine hand. Unless they repent, sinful rebels will be judged with the same spiritual powers that stand against Christ. They will be condemned as exiles outside the presence of God, outside the temple of Christ. And notice how Paul describes the Colossians' former alienation and exile. They were hostile. They were hostile. They were enemies. Paul's picture is one of exiles who had not yet been humbled. It's a picture of exiles who are still very much so in their sin. And these are the exiles who refuse to listen to the words of the prophets. And like the exiles of the old, the Colossians' hostility showed in their conduct. Rebel sinners are hostile toward God in mind and deed. Brothers and sisters, Sinful, evil nature is always shown by our hearts and hands. As God and King, our Christ would have been perfectly just in casting these hostile rebels away, outside of His presence, outside of His temple, outside of His revealed glory. But in His grace, Christ brought us near as God did the exiles of old. But this is very important, brothers and sisters. Paul is not speaking to the Colossians as hostile exiles. He is speaking to them as former exiles. Note that that adverb there. They once were alienated. 
Spiritual exile marked the Colossians' life before their new life in Christ, before entering the new creation, before entering the new temple. Paul's purpose in bringing up the Colossians' former life is not to shame them. It's not to shame them. Paul's purpose is for the Colossians to see the great chasm that Christ has brought near. Christ has not condemned us in His justice, but He has reconciled us in His grace. We have not been left in the old age, but He has brought us into the new. We are no longer outside the temple, cursing our sin, but we have been brought through the temple gates of Christ, restored and reconciled to our God, at peace with Him. In Christ, we are no longer exiles without a home. In Christ, we know that the love of God is sure. Outside of Christ, we are exiles without a temple, exiles without a home, exiles without a refuge from the wrath of God. And all hostile enemies outside of Christ will be swept underneath the torrent of God's justice. And brothers and sisters, it is with that supremely sobering message, with that sober reality of God's wrath, that we see the great love of Christ for sinners. As Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians, we were dead in our sins and trespasses, following Satan, carrying on out the desires of our hostile and evil nature. But we know this verse. We know this verse very well here at Grace. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, or to use the Colossians' language, even when we were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, our God made us alive together with Christ. Brothers and sisters, there is one thing that I want you to take away from this night. It is this first point. Brothers and sisters, Christians are those who rest in God's love for sinners. Let me say that again. Christians are those who rest in the love of God for sinners. He loved us, not for a thing we are in and of ourselves. Left to ourselves, we would continue in our hostility and enmity. But God is not like us. He does not merely love those who love Him. As we've seen so brilliantly in the morning services, our God loves His enemies. This love is not merited. It is not earned. We are to receive God's love as revealed in the gospel, yes, but we do not upkeep this love. God loves us simply because He loves us. There is no reason except God's purpose and will, His own pleasure. God loves us because 
He loves us. And so, brothers, if that is the case, let me ask you a question. If it is the case that God loves us simply because He loves us, why do we often treat God's love as if Christ is our landlord? As long as we keep paying that rent, Christ will allow us to stay in God's presence, right? But what happens when that rent runs dry? What happens when your love and affection for God dwindles? What if sin spiritually bankrupts you for a season? Naturally, the threat of eviction comes over you. You are a freeloader in God's presence, are you not? You're not worthy to stay in His house. So what do you do? You try to earn God's love back? You can't. You can't. Even if your repentance is perfect, what happens when you fail yet again? How many times will God allow you to fail before it is one too many times? Dear Christian, living like this, living like this is to live under the law, not grace. Christ is no harsh landlord. He is the one who prepares many rooms in His Father's home. Brothers and sisters, God's home is not a poor lease agreement. God's love is not like a poor landlord. No. God's home is an orphanage where love abounds for the spiritually destitute. As Christ promised, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never, never, never cast out. Dear Christian, You may feel as if you are about to be evicted because of some sin in your life. And you have no assurance of grace. And you shouldn't. Assurance does not grow in the dry bedrock of sin. But brothers and sisters, take solace. You may feel as if you are about to be evicted, but Christ promises something better than your feelings. Christ promises a place of rest. If you have entered by faith in Christ, you must be at rest. Brothers and sisters, His home is for sinners such as you. So in Christ, we have a home of rest for even the worst of sinners. But Christ does not leave us in our spiritual stupor. This brings us to our second point. We must remain steadfast because we have been prepared for God's home. We have been prepared for God's home. In verse 21, Paul highlights the Colossians' restored and reconciled status in God's presence. So in contrast to the Colossians' alien and alienation, God has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His deaths. Do note that the imagery of the temple continues into this verse. As the true end-time temple, Christ takes on all the functions of the temple that we see in the Old Testament, that we saw in Ezekiel. 
The temple was the place in which God and the worshipers could commune in peace. But man in his sin is unfit to commune with this holy God. So by God's grace, God revealed the ritual sacrifices where priests would offer a substitute for sin. The holy sacrifice would die, experiencing the exile of alienation and enmity in the man's place, thus satisfying God's justice. Therefore, the man could now approach God free from enmity and in peace with God. This ritual sacrifice is what we know as substitutionary atonement. Another dies so that we can have peace with God, that we can commune with God, that we can be at one with God. And with the coming of Christ, God has revealed His true atoning substitute. God reconciled us to Himself through the death of His incarnate Son. Christ suffered the death of exile. He suffered the penalty of our enmity and hostility, satisfying God's justice. He bore God's wrath. So in Christ, we have entered God's home in peace, with a peace established. Our offense has been placed upon Christ, and He has now removed it through His death. And so Christ's death removes the offenses of our sin, but we also gain something in Christ's death. Note that Christ's death has a purpose there in verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, meaning God. Holy, blameless, and above reproach are terms used in the Old Testament to describe sacrifices to God. Holy sacrifices were presented before the Lord at the temple to sanctify priests, to sanctify vessels of God's worship, and to sanctify the people of God in their worship. Though this, Through the smearing and sprinkling of blood, the people were made holy and suitable for the worship of God. Likewise, Christ has made us holy before God through His death. In other words, we are not just forgiven sinners, brothers and sisters. We are sanctified saints in Christ. We have come into God's house not with the rags of our sins, but, with the, but adorned with the holy robes of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is bread and butter Christianity, is it not? This is bread and butter Christianity. Luther called it the great exchange. Some call it the substitutionary satisfaction. It's very simple. God took our sins and He gave us His righteousness. Jesus died so that we can be with God. Christ bore our doubt debt so that we can be counted as righteous. Christ suffered for sin and so we are accepted as holy. And on and on and on. We know this, right? But here's the crazy thing. The Colossians were actually tempted from leaving such a simple gospel. Most likely the false teachers weren't denying that Jesus was God or that He was even necessary for salvation in some sense. Their problem was denying that Jesus alone is sufficient to get us to God. For them, the gospel was just how we get to the new end-time temple of God by our ritual purity. If we transcend to the heavenly temple through visions, we can remain there if we are holy enough in and of ourselves. So in other words, you can remain in God's presence if you're good enough. 
Brothers and sisters, the false teachers use language and concepts that seem plausible to the Colossians. They were talking about this end-time temple. That's something that we talk about. They were talking about the necessity of being holy as God is holy. That's something that we talk about too. They were making arguments that seemed plausible to the Colossians. They had a ring of truth to them. But brothers and sisters, here's the very important part. It is a damnable lie. That lie sends millions to hell. Brothers and sisters, our gospel is one where we remain in God's presence solely because Christ has made us holy, not ourselves. We remain in God's house because Christ has prepared us. And though this is such a simple gospel, there are subtle errors that undermine this gospel even in our day. These are errors that that say that we can stay in God's house by being good enough. And just like the Colossians, there's often a ring of truth to them. Now, brothers and sisters, I must admit, I can only briefly sketch these errors that we're about to review. But I do want to make a recommendation for a book. It's called The Whole Christ by Sinclair Ferguson. Miss Bunny picked it up for us in the uh, book room. And I would highly recommend this publication or this, uh, this book if you are somewhat confused about, about what we're about to address uh, in this following topic, talking about these errors that are very close to us, even within our circles. And so with that said, let's prepare. Here are two current errors that seem to be attractive to churches like ours, those who maybe walk within the Reformed evangelical world. One is called covenant gnomism. Covenant gnomism. Or another way of saying it is covenant lawism. It's the belief that once we have entered the new covenant by faith, it is necessary that we remain in the new covenant by our continued faithfulness. Notice what I said there. It's not continued faith, but faithfulness. And the next error is a little bit more subtle and not as sinister. But this error does go by the title, Lordship Salvation. It's the belief that the gospel message is principally Christ's lordship in our submission to him. Now, uh, that term, Lordship Salvation, is often ascribed to uh, counteracting the the errors of uh, antinomianism or licentiousness. And we should be against licentiousness. That is a problem within churches today. Uh, but it has somewhat evolved beyond its original purpose, this doctrine called lordship salvation. Now, both errors are cut from the same cloth, but they just come at it from two different angles. And both errors have a ring of truth to them, as you see. That's why everyone who uses such language is not a heretic. Let me make that clear. Those who use language such as be, remaining faithful uh, to your covenant or, or uh, using the term like lordship salvation is not necessarily a heretic. So for all those who are amped up, calm down. 
I mean, of course, what Christian wouldn't want to affirm our need to be faithful or that submission to the Lord Jesus is good? Of course we admit that. Of course we affirm that. Yet however plausible, however plausible these errors seem, they actually confuse something that is vital to our salvation. They confuse both the law and gospel. And this is deadly to our souls. Brothers and sisters, let me be abundantly clear with you. This is the bad news. This is the bad news. Jesus is Lord. That is the bad news. Christ will condemn all those who refuse to bend their knee to Him. But here is the good news. The good news is that King Jesus died and rose for rebels. That's the good news. And we receive this King and His saving benefits through faith alone. It is faith that beholds the grace and mercy of God in the person and work of Christ. And faith, brothers and sisters, is that simple trust in God's character as it's revealed to us in Jesus. It is from faith alone that repentance, covenant faithfulness, and obedience to the Lord flows. And our entrance into Christ is the exact same that we got in. And it's how we stay in. We do not stay in Christ because of our obedience or our submission. Not for who we are. That's the fundamental idea here. We do not stay in Christ. We do not keep in Christ's good graces by our own efforts. We remain steadfast in Christ because of who Christ is. Brothers and sisters, there's a fundamental reality that separates those two. We remain steadfast in Christ because of who Christ is. As Paul says elsewhere, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Brothers and sisters, please turn turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Paul may be picking up on a similar theme that Isaiah teaches here in the servant songs. And as we read this passage, I really want all of us to read this passage together. As we read this passage, notice how Isaiah speaks of the people. And not a, what they do is not a thing. But I want you to focus in on of how Isaiah, more importantly, how the Holy Spirit speaks of the servant, the Christ, and what all that he does. So Isaiah chapter 53, we'll read uh, all, all, all 12 verses. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He, Christ, grew up before Him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at Him and no beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we, and we esteemed him not. Those are hostile exiles. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, reconciliation. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a man, lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as were his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I'll divide him a portion with many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many, and he makes intercession for transgressors. Brothers and sisters, We are the rebels in that passage. We esteemed him not. We esteemed him as cursed. We were hostile exiles. But our God showed us love by sending this Christ to die for us, his enemies. We are the rebels whose transgressions have been placed upon the Lord Jesus. He is our sacrificial lamb. He has borne our iniquities and he has brought us peace and righteousness. And so, dear brothers and sisters, if you hear of the errors that we have reviewed tonight, let me implore you, exhort you, remain steadfast in this Christ, in this Christ, not in the Christ of their imaginations, not in the Christ of their divinations, no, Remain steadfast in this Christ and His gospel. Do not look to your own hands. Do not look to your own hands, dear brother and sister. As our great faith has taught us through the hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, both entering into Christ and remaining in Him. But the only reason that we can stay in His presence is simply to thy cross I cling. So then, Christ has saved us and prepared us perfectly. By faith in Christ, we are made holy and righteous and at peace with God. But we must continue in this faith. This brings us to our third and final point. Remain steadfast in Christ because we have no better home. In verse 23, Paul uses architectural language to show our need to remain in Jesus. So Paul caveats his earlier point. 
Christ makes us holy and acceptable before God, as the text says, if indeed you remain in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. The language of remain, stable and steadfast, and not shifting, it's actually architectural language. Paul is carrying the theme of Christ as the new temple into this exhortation. The idea is that that faith that the faith that remains in Christ is stable and steadfast. In other words, Christ is the new temple where forgiveness of sins and holiness abounds for sinners. There is no greater hope than Jesus. And to build your trust anywhere else is to place your trust on seeking sand. If the Colossians were to follow the false teachers, they would be shifting from the sure hope of the Christ of Christ's gospel to a false hope of self. Simply put, the Colossians had no better home to place their trust than Jesus. But here is the grand question. How would the Colossians know they had the true gospel? How could they distinguish between the truth and the very plausible lies, the very plausible lies that had a ring of truth to them? Paul gives us three qualifications for how we discern truth from error. First, the Colossians were to believe the gospel they had heard. Remember that Epaphras had proclaimed the true gospel to the church at Colossae. The church had already heard and received and confessed this gospel. So they do not need to hear anything new, any new messages coming from outside the church. Second, The Colossians were to believe the gospel preached to all creation under heaven. The Colossians were not the only church in the world. There were other faithful churches in their own area that were not falling into this error. And so a good litmus test for truth is to see whether it is being taught in other churches. If false teachers had God's clear revelation, why had it not come to the rest of the world like the rest of the gospel message? That's the question that Paul is kind of hinting at us here. And third, and most importantly, the Colossians were to believe the apostolic gospel. Paul was the servant of Christ's gospel. Paul and the other apostles are Christ's ordained messengers. They were the final litmus test of whether something is to be received as true revelation from God. And so Paul's exhortation to remain steadfast is simply a call not to be deceived. The Apostle Peter does the same in his second letter. Peter warns that false teachers and sinful men will distort the Scriptures, even the letters of Paul. So he exhorts them to know the truth and that false teachers will try to twist it. And so Peter says, You, the church, therefore, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So like Paul, Peter gives us a warning not to be duped. Don't be duped. If we know the truth beforehand, we will be better able to suss out lies and distortions of the false teachers. So do you want to remain in the sure hope of Christ? Then you must know the truth and be able to distinguish it from error. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of divisiveness in the church today. 
the church at large, that is. There's a lot of broken trust between certain groups and churches. Some of this is serious disagreements over important matters uh, that we should recognize. But some of this infighting is personality conflicts and simple pettiness. I'm sure most of you can conjure up some big-name preacher or ministry that you can disagree with. But brothers and sisters, there are real errors among the church today. They are more serious than petty squabbles. They are more serious than the even real disagreements that divide the church today. These errors concern the gospel. They concern the gospel. But how do we distinguish these very real and threatening errors from disagreement and pettiness? And this is where maturity comes in hand. Paul has given us how to distinguish error in, verses, in verse 23. We need a faith that is historic, a faith that is universal, and a faith that is supremely biblical. There's a certain kind of biblicism today that has affected the church. It is thought that as long as I have my Bible, I have all I need. I need no creed but Christ. But what happens when you make an error? If it's just me and my Bible, how are you to be corrected? Can the historic confessions not correct you? Hmm. Yes, there were deep errors in the past that need to be addressed. But God has been teaching the gospel to His church for two millennia. He did not press pause on the church until we or you came on the scene. So brothers and sisters, if you want to distinguish truth from error, see how God has preserved the gospel of Christ through even the worst times of the church. Don't believe the caricature of church history. Don't believe it. Rejoice that you stand on the shoulders of giants and learn from them. Know that they had preserved the gospel, rather, that God had preserved the gospel through them. See God's hand at midst, even within the fabric of our story in history. And let the same teachable spirit overflow as you discern the truth. We are to be men and women of convictions. We should not go against our consciences as we have been informed by the word of God. However, this does not mean that our consciences are infallible. And this requires humility to admit. And Christ has instituted His church for this very reason. No man and no church are an island to Himself. Christ's gospel has been proclaimed to all creation under heaven. So individual believers need a church to be taught to distinguish truth from error. And churches need to have fellow churches for edification, including the confirmation of their gospel ministry. Brothers and sisters, if we were truly independent in the most strict sense, I would not be a member of this church. I would not. Because that kind of church, that kind of spirit, can be incredibly deadly for the individuals in that church. And finally, 
We discern truth from error by the final authority in all controversies of religion, the Holy Scriptures. The errors that afflict the church today are addressed plainly in the Scriptures. The real question is whether we will believe Christ's simple gospel as revealed to us in these pages. Or will we take the mere opinion of some other big name at their word? Brothers and sisters, gospel hope is not found in the vain imaginations of men, no matter how plausible and convincing they may be. You have no better hope than the gospel that has come to the historic, universal, and biblical church. Dear Christian, dear Christian, dear brother and sister, don't shift from this hope. Remain steadfast in the Christ you have received. Remain steadfast in the Christ whom the divinely appointed apostles proclaimed, whose message of salvation has come upon the whole world, and whom the church has entrusted their souls for two millennia. Dear brothers and sisters, don't go your own way with your own thoughts. There is a better and sure hope. You have no better home outside of Christ ordained church. So in conclusion, we are to remain steadfast in Christ because we are no longer exiles without a home. We are free from the fear of being cast out ever again. And we are steadfast because we have been prepared because we have been prepared for God's home. We have been made holy in Christ and need no other, no matter how plausible those arguments may seem. And we remain steadfast because we have no better home. We have a faith and a sure hope that Christ has revealed surely and finally. Let us pray. Oh, Father, it is so simple for even the best of churches, to be duped. To believe in the guise of a faithful teacher, a faithful ministry, but to receive things that are false. Father, this should not promote within our hearts a spirit of drunken stupor in which we fight every person over every small thing. But Lord, it does help us to be careful with this very simple and precious gospel you have given us. Father, as those recipients of your gospel grace, help us to remain steadfast in that, not looking over our shoulder to the vain imaginations of others, but being wholly convinced that your truth as presented in Christ is is our only hope. Oh, Father, may this reality, your clear reality, your sufficient reality, be enough for our souls. We ask this, oh, Father, in your Son's holy and perfect name. Amen.